Go ahead and open your Bibles to the passage that was just read, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Uh, we've kind of warned you throughout, James is an intense book. It's practical, it's applicable, it goes fast, you know, it's hard-hitting in a way. You won't get through the book of James unscathed, and I say that in the best possible way. You know, this book is filled with not just practical wisdom, it's filled with words of life to help us. And certainly in this topic we're going to get in today, there's a lot of life in this text. And I want you to see that and I want you to feel that. I'm eager to share this with you this morning. A brief recap of where we've been. James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, and he was the leader of the Jerusalem church during this time. The church was facing all kinds of trials, all kinds of persecution. In fact, the religious authorities of Judaism, the, the Roman authorities, everybody was determined to stamp out this new movement before it got off the ground. Uh, James is writing to the people that were scattered, the followers of Jesus scattered throughout the region. Why were they scattered? Because of the persecution. They had to flee Jerusalem where the church started, and now they're scattered about the region. God's plan for them because they're now sharing their faith, and the faith the faith is growing and spreading. Now, the audience that he is addressing, we know are men and women following Jesus facing trials of various kinds. Verse 2. So James is teaching them that God is at work in the trials. It's like, take heart, be encouraged. You know, he even says, consider it joy when you're facing these trials because you know God is at work in the trials. What is God at work doing? Verse 4, God is at at work doing something inside of you because he desires something good for you. He desires completion. He desires wholeness. He desires maturity for you. When I think about verse 4, which is sort of a theme verse of the, of the text, uh, I think about the idea of a human being fully alive, whole, complete, lacking nothing, a heart that's whole. Now, when Lloyd kicked off the series, he introduced us to this image that we're going to keep coming back from, this idea of the coin. And most of you in the room, hopefully over the last couple of weeks, you're able to pick one of these up. One dollar coin here, and it's got two sides to it. Just as faith and works are two sides of one thing. And we've got the faith side, we've got the work side. Put them together, we call it active faith. And honestly, as we're going to see, James is going to say, that's really the only type of true faith that there is. It's active faith. You can't have one without the other. That's the theme he's going to keep coming back to. Now, up to this point, when he's talked about trials, it's mostly been external trials, right? So we know there's persecution. Last week, Lloyd talked about wealth. You know, how can wealth be a trial? Well, if you don't have wealth, that's a trial. If you're struggling to make it, that's going to be a test of your faith. But as Lloyd reminded us, if you do have wealth, that's a test of your faith as well to figure out how do I, how do I, use this and steward it and resource it in a way that's going to keep my heart free, you see. So there's these trials, these testings of faith. Most of them come from the outside, but now he's going to shift gears and talk about something internal, temptation, something personal, something very deep, something we might like to think it's private. And so once again, we find ourselves in this text. We find ourselves in this book. None of us are going to be able to leave this morning without saying, God's speaking to me through this text. And here's why I can say that. Surveys show 90% of people struggle with temptation. And the other 10% struggle with lying. <laughs> that is the human condition. And the longer that I pastor, the, the more I'm convinced that 
most of us, like most of us, not a few of us, have a very incomplete, unhelpful view of temptation and sin. Like we're not engaging it the right way. We're not thinking of it the way that God thinks of it. Um, Most of us kind of view temptation and sin as, well, you know, there's a list of things I'm not supposed to do, a list of things I am supposed to do. And when I don't do some and do do some, that's sin. And and I got to use a lot of willpower and kind of white knuckle it to live the best life that God would have for me so he can be pleased with me. And I'm not perfect and I struggle a lot. and, And that's incomplete. It's not a view of sin that I think is going to be life-giving for you. And James is going to help us with this this morning. In fact, of all the passages in the Bible that address temptation, and as you can imagine, there are a number, I honestly believe this one is as illuminating and helpful as any. I can't wait to teach on this. I believe temptation and the the sin that, that comes after temptation when we're tempted is eating our lunch. I believe that. I believe it's stealing our joy. It's destroying relationships. It's sapping our strength. It's robbing us of life. And here we have an opportunity this morning to engage words of life spoken by the Holy Spirit through this text as he re-speaks the text that he authored 2,000 years ago. And I hope we're able to engage it, pay attention, and apply it. Five verses this morning, three parts. Three parts to the text, three parts to the message. Something old we should let go. Something deep we must understand, something new we can choose. Something old we should let go, something deep we must understand, something new we can choose. Let's start with part one, something old we should let go. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. The thing we should let go of, the old thing we should let go is Blame shifting. It's blame shifting. It's this human instinct to avoid responsibility, right? The attitude that my failure is someone else's fault. And this is everywhere, all in our culture. And we don't typically start with blaming God, but we land there. Let me explain what I mean. Here's where we start. If that person would just treat me differently and give me what I need in life, then I wouldn't be tempted to so-and-so. If those circumstances hadn't happened in my life, at that time, then I wouldn't be tempted. If that person hadn't done this or that, or how about this one? If life just worked the way it's supposed to, like if it were easier, or if I could just have a little bit more, or if, you know, that's where we start looking upward. And at some point in time, you run out of things down here to blame, and eventually you get to God. It's like, he made life this way. He made me this way. I remember thinking about that when I was in you know, high school and growing up and struggling with different things, you know, as I'm coming of age, I'm like, why did God make me this way? Like, why do I desire stuff that he says I shouldn't do or have, you see? This is very interesting. Now, why do I call this something old, blame shifting? Why do I call it something old? Because it's been around as long as human beings have been around. Okay, think about Genesis chapter 3, right? In the garden, first sin God comes to the man and says, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And God says to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman says, the serpent implied, the serpent that you made and put in the garden. He deceived me and I ate. This Blame shifting is so instinctive 
for us as human beings. So here's how the way it works. I blame someone else. That person then blames someone else. That person then blames someone else. This is all over our culture right now. No one's actually responsible. No one's actually held accountable because everybody has a reason. Everybody has a, a, a way to shift the blame. So if, if no one's actually responsible, eventually there's only one place to put the blame on the God who made it all. James is saying God cannot be tempted by evil and he does not tempt anyone. So here's what's going on in, in the context where these early Christians lived. They were surrounded by Greek culture, Roman culture. Greek gods, Roman gods. They would have been very familiar with that. James is saying, look, the true God that you worship is not like those so-called gods who are always portrayed as selfish and petulant and manipulative. He's saying the true God is completely distinct and separate from any form of sin. So when you're tempted, it's not coming from up there. Like, it's not coming from God. In fact, James is about to explain it's coming not from anything external to you at all. It's coming from something internal to you. So something old we should let go is blame shifting. And that means we must be willing to own responsibility for our sin and face what is true about us. And that takes us deep inside our own hearts which is exactly where James goes next. So from something old we should let go to something deep, we must understand. Look at verses 14 to 16. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived my beloved brethren. These three verses are jam-packed, and it's so important that you track this. We're gonna break it down line by line so we can really follow James' logic, and you're gonna have to think. Like, this is one of those messages. There's not gonna be a lot of jokes in this. You're gonna have to really engage your brain, and you think, and, and it'll be worth it, I believe. Verse 14, let's start with that. Each one's tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Let's talk about the word lust. It's not... It's not just what you think it is. Like in our, in our culture, we hear the word lust. And there's only one connotation that we think of that. It's broader than that. It's much broader than that. In fact, the Greek word translated lust in this text is epithumia. And epithumia doesn't usually mean lust in the way that we typically think of it in our modern context. Right? It simply literally means a strong desire for something. And this is important to note. It could be a strong desire for something good or a strong desire for something bad. So in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus arrives for the Last Supper with his disciples, he says, I eagerly desire epithumia to have this Passover supper with you. That's a good desire. Other places, it's a bad desire or a twisted desire, and you have to read the context to see. But the word itself is neutral. So many of the other translations, in fact, NASB is one of the only modern translations I could find that uses the word lust. And, and by the way, I think there's a reason they use it, and I'll explain in a minute. But most of the other translations, if you're reading NIV or ESV or any of the other modern translations, it's going to use the word desire. It's going to use the word desire. Now, I think the context makes it clear that James has in mind not just neutral desires, 
but unhealthy desires. Those are the kinds of desires that James has in mind. In fact, a better way maybe to translate the word than lust and even better than desire would be the idea of corrupted desire. Like desire for the wrong things or twisted desire, corrupted desire, which in its broadest meaning, that's what lust means. I think the way that word was used a generation or two ago was more broad than it is mostly in our generation. It's a strong desire that's corrupted. It's for the wrong things. It's twisted a little bit. Here's how I might paraphrase or, you know, kind of roughly translate what I think James is saying in verse 14 for our modern ears. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by corrupted desires deep inside of himself. Corrupted desires deep inside of you. So James is reflecting on this idea of temptation and he's saying, listen, temptation doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from anywhere outside of you. Don't shift the blame. Temptation starts deep inside of you in the soil of your desires. Now, this is where I want to go back to what we talked about in the fall for those of you that were here. Our mission at Fellowship is to glorify God and make disciples by helping people find wholehearted life. And so we use this image of the heart that's been fragmented. We're going to put this up on the screen. And, you know, you can think about the heart as the core of who you are, the inner person. And it consists, you know, in Scripture, the heart is not just the emotions. The heart's also your thoughts and your choices. Yes, your emotions, but also your desires, you see. Here's the human condition. You see those pieces broken apart? That heart is fragmented. It's fractured. Here's the human condition. Apart from the work of regeneration in Christ through the Spirit, there is something significantly disjointed in each one of us, in each part of us even. Our thoughts aren't the way they're meant to be. There's something twisted and broken in our minds, our choices, our emotions, and yes, our desires. Now, the Bible never says that all of your desires are corrupt. It does not say that, just as it doesn't say that all of your thoughts are corrupt or all of your emotions are corrupt. That's not true. That's not true. But what it does say is that part of the depravity of human beings in our fallen state is that our hearts tend to be bent to desire things that are not healthy for us. And you don't have to think long about that just to know it's true. Our hearts tend to be bent in such a way so that we desire often, not always, but often, things that are not healthy for us. Things that may look good on the outside, inside there's no life in them. In fact, there's actually only death, as we're about to see. Okay, so this is the idea of the desires all right, we're going to leave this illustration up. We're going to go on to verse 15. You're going to start to see how James is, is saying something profound with these few verses. Look at verse 15. Then when lust or desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So James is using a metaphor here. Okay? He's using the metaphor of human reproduction. Or maybe not just human. He's using the, the, the metaphor of reproduction. A conception leads to a birth, right? That's how the process works. But in this case, rather than the birth being a source of life, which is what a birth ought to be, 
bringing life into the world, it's a source of death. Now keep in mind, we're not just talking about sexual lust. We're talking about corrupted desires of all kinds here. Now with that in mind, there's something important here that we must understand, and it's this. There is a very close relationship inside the inner person between our desires and our choices. When desire has conceived, James says, it gives birth to sin. So let's talk about what sin is for a minute. This word conceived is very interesting. Literally in the Greek, it's to put together. It's like two things being put together. That kind of makes sense if you think about conception. Two things being put together. When desire has conceived, what does that mean? What are the two things that are coming into union? Your corrupted desire and the choice to act on it. That's sin. When desire's conceived, it gives birth to sin. In other words, sin is created by the union between an unhealthy desire and the choice to act on it. That's what creates sin. That's what James is saying. Now, one of the key insights of this verse is that your desires drive your choices. And of course, your choices are influenced by your thoughts for sure, your emotions for sure, right? The heart, like it, it, all, it all sort of works together. You, you can't totally separate them out. But, but more than anything else, what James is saying here is like your desires and choices are tied together in such a way that your desires drive your choices. Now think about this for a minute. So when you've made a sinful choice, okay, let, let's just imagine that you've already made the sinful choice, whatever, whatever it is. If you were to take the time to do an autopsy, on that sin and, and on that temptation, here's what you're going to find. That, that there was some desire below the line that you were trying to satisfy through that choice. There was, was something in you that was, was starving for something, that was hungry for something. Right? Your appetite and according to what the Bible teaches us about our fall, it's like some of your desires, some of your appetites are not healthy. You see, and when you act on those unhealthy appetites, there's sin. Let's use lying as an example, okay? Because I think it's something that we can all relate to. It's like nobody thinks they're a liar, and yet we all lie from time to time. And you're like, well, I don't lie. You might be thinking, you know, let me just give you an example from my own life that, you know, call it a white lie. Lie is a lie. Um, somebody sent me an email, I don't know, three or four weeks ago when we were starting the James series and it had like these resources and thoughts about James and like he was all into it and excited and like I, I just missed it. I didn't have time to read it, you know. And so I saw him in the, the, later on in the middle of the week at a men's Bible study and he was just like, oh, did you read my email? Now at that point in time, I'm embarrassed because I didn't read his email. I have a choice to make. There's part of my desires that wants to save face and wants him to think I've got it together and then I'm not lazy sometimes and then I'm keeping up with all my stuff. And so part of me want desires to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, it was a good, that was really helpful. I'm grateful for that email and I'll, uh, I'll respond back to it in a few days when I have a little more time. That wasn't true. You ever been tempted to do something like that? By the way, I told the truth. In that case, I told the truth. But there have been other instances I didn't, if I'm honest with you. So when you lie, it doesn't just come out of thin air. Beneath the surface, there's a desire for something that you believe the lie will move you toward. There's a desire for a, some kind of life 
that you think the, the lie will gain for you. Maybe you want to make yourself look better like I did. Maybe you want to avoid embarrassment. Maybe, maybe you're lying because you want something more than you're entitled to. Maybe you're lying because you, you want to shirk responsibility and just kind of like lay back in passivity and, and, and comfort. You don't want to step forward and you're lying. There's all kinds of reasons you can lie. This is what James is showing us, all right? And this is just so profound to me. Your desires drive your choices. So desires that are corrupted create temptations to make sinful choices. Are you tracking with this so far? All right, dig in. Dig in. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. That's where we're going to go next. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Once an unhealthy desire is brought together with a choice to act on that desire, there's an unstoppable chain reaction. Sin is born Sin always brings death. Sin always brings death. This is especially helpful when you understand the word death in the full context of which James is writing. So let's, let's talk about death for a moment. Most people's minds go either to literal physical death or if you're reading the word death in the Bible, your, your mind might go to spiritual death both of those are part of it yes but there's also so much more death essentially in scripture from a theological perspective when you see that word death it, it sometimes refers to literal like he died you know you know what that's talking about sometimes it refers to eternal separation from God death but the big category I want you to think about when you think about the word death it's separation so here's some examples. So physical death is separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is separation of the person from relationship with their God, the God, their creator. But death can also describe anything that's fragmented or separated, divided, broken. You see this? We use the word this way in our context today. Think about death of a dream. It's like, what does that mean? Well, I had a dream. It was connected to me. Not going to happen anymore. It's separated. It's gone. And I'm still here. Death of a dream. How about death of a relationship? That relationship died. That friendship died. That marriage died. We use that today. Separation. Fragmentation. That's theologically what, what death is. You might think of it this way. Theologically, death is ultimately separation or fragmentation in God's good creation. Death is the opposite of life, yes, but that means death is not just the opposite of life in the way we think about it. Death is the opposite of wholeness. In Hebrew, this powerful word shalom, we've talked about it a number of times. Hebrew Old Testament word means wholeness, completion, all things made rightly together. Genesis chapter three, sin comes into the world fragmented, fractured, a tear in the fabric of shalom. So here's something deep you must understand. Sin always leads to death. That's true for every sense of the word death, not just the literal physical expiration. One commentator put it this way, the word death is intended to cover every form of disintegration and final collapse to which man is heir. It was sin that brought physical death into the world. Jesus taught that because of your sin, 
Apart from him, you're eternally separated from God. That's spiritual death. We know from scripture and from our own experience that sinful choices create all kinds of separation and fragmentation and disintegration all around us. How do friendships become fractured? How do promising careers die? How do communities become divided and stop working together? You see all this division, all this fragmentation, all this fracturing. How do a husband and wife who care deeply for one another over time become distrusting and distant? It's just a little bit of sin. A little bit of sin just sprinkled into these relationships. Sin brings division, death, separation, fragmentation, disintegration. You use you pick the word. Now, why are we hitting on this so hard? Because we tend to think that our sin doesn't have a lot of consequence. Especially if it's the kind of sin that we think is relatively small or, or, or private. But every sin leads to death of some kind. Maybe death of integrity. Maybe death of trust. Maybe death of hope. Maybe death of intimacy. Death is the opposite of life. And every sinful choice leads you away from fullness of life. Listen, it's a step, sin is, it's a step away from God's vision for you of wholeness and completion. And it's a step toward some diminished and dysfunctional version of yourself. That's what sin is. That's why God makes a big deal of it. And we tend to think that God's just up there with some haphazard list of rules and rights and wrongs and it doesn't even make sense to us. Why? Does... It's for life, men and women. It's for your joy and his glory. Death always precedes comes out of sin. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Isn't that interesting how he tags that on there? Here's the pastor's heart coming out in James. He's like, men and women, I love you. Don't be deceived. When it comes to temptation, there's something old we should let go. That's shifting the blame. There's something deep we must understand. And that's the connection between corrupted desires, sinful choices, and death. And there's something new we can choose. Let's look at our last two verses together, verse 17 and 18. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Isn't that a breath of fresh air based on what we've just been in the text? It's such a contrast to the, to the death and the darkness that comes before. So far in this chapter, here's what James has done. Like he's talked about trials from the outside and then, and then temptations from the inside. And just when you think that maybe there's very little hope for any of us in this dark world, the father of lights shows up. Here's what these two verses are saying. The giving God has desires of his own. 
and he desires life for you, not death. And so amidst a life that you live, that I live, fraught with trials, fraught with temptations, the giving God has given good and perfect gifts. Remember the word perfect means whole. It means complete. It's the opposite of death. It's the opposite of something that's broken, fragmented, fractured. Therefore, it's in contrast with death. You might even say that these good and perfect gifts are things the giving God has given that work against death in our lives. He's given good and perfect gifts, whole, complete, working against fragmentation, working against death in our lives. Now, the giving God not only has desires of his own, the giving God has choices of his own. And listen to this from our verses. And in the exercise of his will, his choice, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Now, the word of truth is a reference to the gospel of Jesus. Through the gospel, God promises us a hope, a future, and even now, as we're waiting for those things, he is actively working in us through the Spirit, renewing and remaking everyone who believes. Now, this is an interesting little insight. The word brought us forth, literally translated, means gave birth to. So what you see is James is contrasting. It's incredible the way he's doing this. It's brilliant. He's creating a contrast between corrupted human desires, talked about in the previous verses, which give birth to sinful choices and ultimately death. He's contrasting that now with God's desires, God's choices, which give birth as well. They give birth to life. They give birth to wholeness and fullness. Now the first fruits imagery here in verse 18 is a picture of life springing from the earth, right? It's like there was barren ground and now the crops are starting to come up and the first fruits, you were commanded to take the first of your crop and worship God with it. Give it to God. It's a sign that the giving God has provided life, you see. So here's what these verses are saying. Those of us who have faith in Jesus have been reborn. Second birth, reborn. Why have you been reborn? To have life and to give life. In other words, to become life-giving worshipers of God. To be a first fruits brought to God, anticipating, this is mind-blowing, that the whole creation will one day be renewed and made alive again. The whole creation is going to come back to life. Death's going to have an end. There'll only be wholeness and only be completion. In the end of verse 18, you know, the NASB translates it among his creatures, first fruits among his creatures. You could go just as easily among his creation. And I think that messes with what Paul's talking about in Romans 8. Like the whole creation is going to be renewed. We're the first fruits of that. Now, all of this, all of that good stuff, all that life centers on the good and perfect gift from above. God's own son. So our passion here at Fellowship is to help people find wholehearted life where in Jesus. Why in Jesus? Because he's the only source. He's the only place that true life is found. And so here's what this looks like. 
all right? Here's what this looks like. I'm going to go back to this diagram. When, when, when we are called to ourselves find wholehearted life in Jesus and help others find wholehearted life in Jesus, here's what we're talking about, that we can shift from this, the fragmented heart, thoughts, choices, emotions, desires, to this, the whole heart, renewed mind, active faith, healthy relationships, and what happens with our desires as they're transformed, satisfied, soul. You see, this is the picture of the completion, the wholeness. This is what God is moving us toward through all these trials that we're facing. This is what maturity looks like. Now, notice, and I can't highlight this exactly, but notice what's in the center of those pieces that have been put together. It's a cross. You see, all this integrates around Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection to defeat fragmentation, death, division, disunity, and bring about wholeness under him. Wholeness under him. So as we follow Jesus, and this is what I want to talk about in this this bottom left quadrant. Remember, desires now transformed. We call that a satisfied soul. As we follow Jesus, our desires, which are so easily corrupted, okay, even after your Point of faith, your desires are so still easily corrupted. Your desires begin to be transformed over time into a satisfied soul. Listen to Psalm 103. I never caught this before this week related to the the heart. Psalm 103, psalmist writes, he satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Okay, your desires that are there He's going to satisfy them as you walk with him. He's going to satisfy them, though, with good things. With good things. This idea of your youth being renewed like the eagles. Men and women, I've been there. You've been there. Some of you are there right now. When you are living in a cycle of sin, it will take you out. It will sap your strength. It will diminish your life. It will kill your energy. It will be all you can do just to keep going through the circle day in, day out, getting out of bed. Listen. He satisfies your desires with good things so that your, your youth is renewed. The good and perfect gift of God's love and acceptance to you in Jesus allows you to make new choices. It allows you to make new choices. And listen, that good and perfect gift of God's love for you through Jesus, his sacrifice for you through Jesus, that did not come when you were having a great day. That did not come because he saw someday John's going to get it together. Pat's going to get it together. Amy's going to get it together. And they're going to earn this. Oh, no. While you were yet sinners. In your brokenness, in your fragmented heart, in your corrupt desires, Christ died for you. You see, and that good and perfect gift allows you to make new choices. This is why when you face temptation as a follower of Jesus, you have a new choice. You have a new choice. You can choose life rather than death. Now, the, the big question you know, that we've been moving all toward is how do we actually do this? How do we actually choose life instead of death? I want you to pull out this coin. If you have it, if you don't, you can just look at mine or you can think about yours. Hopefully everybody has, has had a chance to get one of these. Now, there's a faith side, there's a work side. How do you live this out? How do you engage temptation in a wholehearted way, men and women? There's a faith side and there's a work side. Let me talk briefly about the faith side. It starts with believing that God's posture towards you is life, not death. 
It starts with believing James 1.17, okay? That the Father of lights desires life for you, not death for you. It starts with believing that everything truly good in your life comes from him. This is huge. Like, this is so enormous, and it's not a one-time thing. You've got to keep renewing your mind that God is for you, not against you. Why is this so important? Because if you don't believe that, you'll never resist temptation because you will think that God is holding out on you. And so you won't view his commandments as being life-giving and a path of life. You'll believe that his commandments are either irrelevant for you or oppressive. They're either irrelevant or they're oppressive. And so you will seek fullness of life, but you will seek it in other places. So you have to believe that everything that proceeds from the mouth of God is for your wholeness and your life and his glory. It starts with that. You will never resist temptation if you don't have faith that that is true. Now, the works part, the second side of the coin, let's talk about that. So it starts with this idea, I believe God's path leads to life and living apart from him leads to death. Here's what the action side or the works side looks like. In the moment of temptation, literally in the moment of temptation, you have to invite the Father of lights into the struggle with you. You gotta invite him in. You know, you can't white knuckle it on your own. You will fail, you will fall. It is only by the Spirit that you can make a new choice. So here's what it looks like to invite the Father of lights, to invite God himself into the trial with you. You cry out to him even in that moment. And the problem is you don't feel like talking to God when you're tempted. But if you believe in faith, he has only good for you and not death for you, life for you, then you'll be able to, to put action to that faith and you'll be able to say, God, my desire right now is twisted. My desire is corrupt. I want this thing. I'm, I'm craving it. I'm thirsting for it. My appetite is bent toward that. My desires are corrupted toward it. I know it's not life-giving, so would you help me? And here's what you ask him to do. Would you transform my desire by your spirit that's inside of me? Would you redirect my desire from things that would rob me of life to things that would give me life? From broken things to whole things, from bad gifts to Good gifts, so to speak. Would you help me, Father, see that my truest desire is actually for fullness of life found in you. And I don't want to leave you. And from a soul that is growing in satisfaction in Christ through that kind of relationship, you can make new choices by the spirit that is in you. You can. We call that active faith. Now, here's what we want to do. We want to give everybody in the room an opportunity to respond to the word of God that has been spoken through the Spirit in this text this morning. And how, how will you do that? Well, we're going to give you a lot of different options. Um, we're going to have a time of prayer. It's going to last about four or five minutes. It's just going to be an opportunity for us to pray. There'll be some music going on. You can sing along if you want, but you don't have to. This is really about praying. It's about an opportunity for us to engage relationally with God in areas of temptation. That's what this is for. So in a minute, I'm gonna ask you to stand up because I wanna start by praying over you. And then after I pray over you, you're welcome to stay standing. You know, the, the posture of prayer often in scripture is a standing posture. If you'd like to sit and pray and reflect, that's perfectly fine as well. Let me give you a couple other options that I wanna really challenge you to consider this morning. 
the first is we have some individuals in our body that have said, I, I, I would love to pray for people during a service. So starting today and going all throughout the next month, we're going to have a time of prayer near the end of our service each week where you're going to have a chance to have somebody pray with you or for you. And in just a minute, I'm going to call them to the front. They're going to come up right around the front. And you can tell them as much or little as you want. And it doesn't have to be about a temptation, although certainly if you need prayer there, we want to pray with you. It could be a trial you're going through. Just anything at all that we can help you and pray for you. Our heart is to do that for you this morning. We also have the opportunity for you to kneel right up here on the stage. We put these soft pads up here to kneel. You don't have to talk to anybody if you don't want. You can just come forward. There's something about getting yourself out from where you are now and walking forward that's saying, God, I'm going to live this out. I want this to be active. I'm going to put feet to my faith. So I want to give you the opportunity for that. So all that's going to be happening in the next four or five minutes, let me go ahead and ask you to stand up. And uh, if you're part of the prayer team for this service, come on down right now. Four or five of you that are here, come on down right now. You can just spread out right in front. And we're going to have an opportunity to come forward if you'd like to, to receive prayer or just be prayed with. You're going to have the opportunity to come and kneel. You can stand and pray. You can sit and pray. Let me pray for you as we begin. Our Father, we come before you, a people in need. We dare to believe, Father, in faith that you have life for us. And we also confess it's hard for us sometimes to choose the path of life. It doesn't always look like it leads to life. Would you strengthen our faith this morning? And would you strengthen our works this morning? Would you allow us, even in the act of prayer, that itself is an expression of faith. That's an act of faith. Would you call those that you would call to come out of where they're standing or sitting and and walk down here and be prayed for and be prayed with by one of you? Would you call them and would they obey you in that? Would, would you call others just to be able to come before you and just kneel in a posture of humility and say, God, I'm here before you. Would you work in my heart and life? And for all of us, Father, may we use these moments expressing our faith as we pray to you in Jesus' name.